It's so good to see you. I'm so glad to be with you. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke 19. If, uh, if you've been around for most of this study in the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> you've heard me mention lots and lots and lots of times that the theme of the Gospel of Luke is the kingdom of God. In that Jesus, what he's been doing through the whole Gospel, where we have his teaching segments is that he's been showing us bit by bit, section by section, what this kingdom of God is like because we don't naturally understand it. It's beyond anything that we have experience with. Um, Often it's very different from the world that we live in. And so we've seen Jesus unfolding to us gradually things like, well, what is the nature of this kingdom? And what are its values? Who are its opponents? Who's the king? And like, when is it coming? And where? And we've been learning about all these things uh, piece by piece. And we've noted several times already that the kingdom of God is a unique thing because there's a sense in which it's here already. And there's a sense in which it's not here yet. It's here already in the presence of the church, in the spirit-filled believer, as we represent the kingdom to the world. The kingdom is present in us. God is reigning in us, in the believer. So yes, it's here already, but the kingdom has not yet come in its fullness. The values of this kingdom are not yet pervasive and upheld over all of this planet. They will be. When the king returns... Peace and righteousness, the the values of the kingdom will will pervade this planet. And in the meantime, we try to discern how we're to live in this unique situation where the kingdom is, in a sense, here, but not yet. Like, what should we prioritize during this time? What should we do? What should we not do? trying hard to do the right things and all the while there's these other voices out there that are trying to give us direction on things to do during this interim time and many of those voices are contrary to the word of God. Today here in Luke 19, we're going to begin in verse 11. What we're going to see is Jesus help us deal with two of the most important um, issues. Two of the most important things related to the fact that the kingdom is not yet here. First of all, the the fact that we face opposition. And secondly, the reality that it's taking the, the full kingdom a long time to arrive. There's delay. There's delay and there's opposition. So how are we going to deal with those things? And Jesus is going to give us help with that. Living in this interim period, representing the kingdom of God, but trying to deal with delay and opposition. He's going to give us help. He's going to give us help in the form of a parable. Pretty much the whole section is a parable. Parable is just very simply a story that is told to prove or show one main truth, sometimes multiple truths. A story told to teach one main truth. And... um, We're going to read the parable first, and then we'll do our best to try to understand what Jesus is teaching about how to deal 
with opposition and deal with delay. All right? This is Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. Um, If you're able to stand one more time, I want to invite you to do that in honor of God and his word. And this uh, this is what we find. Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Now, uh, we don't use that terminology anymore. A a mina is an amount of money that's equivalent to what you could earn in about three months. Okay, so think three months wages. That's, That's what they're getting here. He calls ten of his servants, he gives them each one of these ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business The first one came before him saying, Lord, your mina has earned 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. The second one came saying, Lord, your mina has earned five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in handkerchief for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow he said to him I will condemn you with your own words you wicked servant you knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Father, thank you that uh, Jesus um, has taken the time to teach. We, uh, We uphold him. We look to him as savior and friend and teacher and redeemer. We know that what he has spoken here is true and that it has the capacity to help us. And so we pray you would help us to understand what he's saying so we can put it into practice. We love him and want to do right by him and be found faithful. So help me in my speaking. Pray for the the listeners and uh, for all of our hearts that we would be good soil today and that you would give us help, that we could go away rejoicing 
uh, feeling like we have understood what we have read and that we are motivated uh, to serve Jesus more and more. And we pray in his lovely name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, do you agree with me that some of Jesus' parables are easier to understand than others? I think this one's pretty hard. I don't know about you. I think about um, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, and, you know, we love those. Those are really familiar. Um, They're almost intuitive. We feel like we kind of grasp them quickly in what's happening and identify with some of these things. This is hard. Like, this is really hard. There's terminology we don't use anymore. There's themes that are really difficult. Um, Like the last verse, um, these enemies being brought before the master being slaughtered, that's a difficult theme. We even have other things that are difficult, like this um, third servant that we meet, the one who's called wicked. What are we supposed to do with him? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? And did he change in the middle of the story? And could that be us? This is really hard, okay? We're going we're gonna to do the best we can here and uh, pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us through this and, and help us to handle this in a, a faithful way. Let, let's start with this. I think it's really helpful to, at first, just start with getting a handle on why Jesus told this parable. Like, what was his purpose in telling it? Because that'll be like 50% of the work, to understand what's going on in his mind and why he's even telling this story. We're actually told, in verse 11, specifically, why he tells the parable. Notice... We read that Jesus is near to Jerusalem. Now, look, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a long time now, like at least a year and a half. So this might have kind of snuck up on us. The next passage is about the triumphal entry. That's the, that's when we get back to the Gospel of Luke two weeks from now. That's where we're going to be in the Gospel. Like, it's happening. He's approaching Jerusalem. Like, it's that trip to Jerusalem. He's near He's, he just left Zacchaeus' house. We didn't cover that passage on, on this pass. We talked about Zacchaeus a little bit um, on an earlier study. But he met Zacchaeus in Jericho. Jericho is only 15 miles from Jerusalem. So they're near. They're headed there. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem. And within six days, he will be dead. And the problem is his disciples are not prepared for this. Like, their expectations of what's going to happen in Jerusalem is, are, are completely different. Now, it's not that Jesus hasn't done his work to prepare them. It's not like he hasn't been working to prepare them. It's not like he hasn't been telling them exactly what's going to happen repeatedly. They just can't comprehend that it's actually going to happen. So, now look back at verse 31 of chapter 18. So we're backing up into chapter 18 and look at verse 31. Look, look at how he's been preparing them. Look how plain this is. In taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. 
this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. How, how much plainer could he have been? This is at least the third time that Jesus told them about his approaching death. There are three recorded times in the Gospel of Luke, twice in chapter 9 and then here in chapter 18. And in spite of what they've been told, the disciples are simply not prepared for the kind of opposition that they're going to face in just a few hours as they enter Jerusalem. Their expectation, on the other end of the spectrum, is that they're going to a coronation, like that Jesus is going to be received as king, that they think the kingdom is going to appear immediately. That's verse 11, the first verse we read. And think about it. The triumphal entry is going to do nothing to dissuade them of that notion. Jesus coming into the city is going to be hailed as a triumph. And there's going to be all kinds of cheering. Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom. Now it's time for the great ascension of the king. He's on his way. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people are going to be shouting. They think the kingdom's going to appear immediately, like just a few days or a few hours. So they're not prepared for the opposition, and they're not prepared for the delay. They think it's happening now. And so for those reasons, Jesus tells them a parable. But they couldn't understand in direct language like what we just read in 1831, Jesus puts in the form of a story to help us deal with opposition and delay. You know, opposition and delay can be just massively troublesome for our faith. Who likes opposition? And who likes delay? Those things can really, really test our faith in God and his promises. We've been told that God is good, and we've been told that Jesus is returning. But when we see all this opposition and delay, we can start to think, hey, like if any of this is real, if Jesus really is the true and coming king, and and God really is good, and God really is powerful. Why, all the, why is God allowing all this evil to run rampant? And why is he delaying and so that tragedies and killing and evil is multiplied? Like, why would there be a delay? And why does the opposition seem to be winning? And we can get really discouraged and we think, well, maybe it's not true. Think about how hard it is for us to deal with opposition and delay. Well, let's remember this. It's not like we haven't been prepared for it. You know, we're more like these original disciples than we thought. Like, Jesus told them plainly, here's what's going to happen. They did not understand. Jesus has told us plainly, in the form of this parable, in other places, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be delay, and there's going to be opposition. And somehow, we still look around and think, why is all this happening? It's not like he hasn't told us plainly that it'll be like this. So if we are experiencing all these things, that's just what should be happening. It's just what Jesus said would happen. Now, that doesn't mean that it's easy to handle. 
It doesn't mean that it's easy for us to navigate these things. And so we're given some direction here in the parable to help us deal with these realities of delay and opposition. Okay, let's deal with delay first. How do we handle the delay of the kingdom's coming? Well, let's try to keep it really simple. We're just we're going to pull two main points out of this parable and talk about the significance of each one. Okay. First of all, regarding delay, this is a time for faithful stewardship. Jesus is absent. He's like this nobleman. Jesus is the nobleman in the parable, okay? He's like the nobleman that leaves. He's absent. He's receiving the kingdom, and he'll come back. But he's not back yet. There's a delay. There's a period of his absence. And this is a time for faithful stewardship. This dynamic is pictured in the parable, the nobleman who's going to be gone for a long time and trust his servants with a gift, an amount of money that they're to use to benefit the king in his kingdom. They're to put it to use, and they'll give an account for it when he returns. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, along with being his friend, you have been given an entrustment. You've been given a gift to put to use for his benefit until he returns, and you will give an account for your use of that gift. Now, what exactly is that in your life? Like, Jesus didn't hand you a mina. What does the mina represent in your life? I think that's a really important question here, practically speaking, to get a handle on. Like, what exactly have I been given that I'm supposed to steward And I just want to tell you, I I want to try to be as biblical as I can right here at this point, because the last thing that I want to do is give you a list of stuff that you have to do that just comes out of my own brain. I, I don't want to put that on you and say, here's what I think you should be doing to be a faithful steward. I want to stick as closely as I can to the scriptures to say, here's what I believe the Bible says you should be stewarding right now. So it's not coming from Matt. It's coming from the scriptures. So what can we make a biblical case for that you've been given? I think we can make a biblical case for at least three things that kind of shape and encompass the gift that's been handed to you. All right. There might be more than three, but I think these are three that you can make a strong biblical case for. What have you been given that you are to faithfully steward during this period of Jesus' absence? And the first one is... The kind of the one we might think of right away. You've been given money. Your, your giving is part of your faithful stewardship. Solid biblical case for that. Second Corinthians 9, right? Each of us should give as we've decided in our own heart. So it's not whether or not we'll give to the Lord out of what he's given to us financially. It's what have we decided in our heart that we will give. Not a certain amount, but according to what you determine to give to the Lord. So I think we can say that for sure, that you're to steward your finances. That's not a surprise to you. Second thing, um, there's a strong biblical case that you are to be stewarding your gifting or the particular spiritual gift that God has given to you, your spiritual gift. We find our support for this at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. To each, so to each believer, 
To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each person has been given a spiritual gift, which is not for them. It's for the common good, for the building up of the body. We don't all have the same gift. That would be really bad if we all had the same gift. We would lack a lot of things that we need. There's a variety of gifts present in the church. The question for you is, how has God gifted me? And is that gift finding an outlet? Is it, is it flowing to other people? Or is it getting stopped up? Um, this is not a sermon on spiritual gifts, so I'm not going to go through what all the gifts are. First um, Corinthians 12 is a good place to go. Romans 12 is a good place to go if you want to survey what the, the gifts of the Spirit are and try to determine what, what your gift is that God has given you. The main point here is that there's a strong biblical case that your gifting is one of the things you should be stewarding. And by the way, if you are in a position where you know how you've been gifted... And a lot of times that manifests itself in this great desire that you have and the enjoyment that you have in using your gifts. Like, if you know how you've been gifted, but just are having trouble figuring out, like, where's my outlet here for that to happen? Um, I would love to talk with you about that. There's all kinds of ways that that could play out here. Um, Just catch me or shoot me an email or a text and say, hey, this is what I'd love to do. I feel like I've been gifted this way. Is there an outlet for, for me at Prairie Hill to begin to engage that? That's also not to say that your gift will not be manifested outside these walls in any number of different organizations. Okay, This is not a Prairie Hill-specific call for people to use their gifting here. Your gifting may be used outside in all kinds of other ways. Hopefully there's a residual that comes to us at Prairie Hill from, from that gifting that you have. But you may be doing all those things um, outside these walls apart from um, the main use here. So we're talking about stewarding our gifts at this time of Jesus' absence as a a time to be faithful stewards. Um, Try to make an argument for giving being part of that, an argument for your gifting being part of that. Then I think if we're going to be responsible, we have to also say that we're to steward the opportunities that God brings to us that um, we're not expecting. Holy Spirit-led encounters with people or invitations that come out of the clear blue sky where God just brings something to us. And we are required to be a faithful steward of that opportunity. We might just call this unplanned stewardship. Because the first two we can kind of plan, right? Our giving, our gifting. But what about, what if we're Peter sitting on the roof praying, having our own private prayer session... Like in, we see Peter doing in Acts 10. And all of a sudden, God does a new thing and drops something new into his lap and says, I want you to go outside and talk to people. And I want you to talk to people that you don't usually talk to. And I want you to eat with them. What if God does something like that in your life? The new thing. When the Holy Spirit breaks in and says, yeah, this isn't in your area of gifting. And this doesn't have anything to do with money. But I'm bringing you this opportunity. We have to leave room for Stewarding those things and not like Peter initially say no. 
So just take a, take a look at that list up here and just do a little inventory of yourself with, with giving and gifting and opportunities. And just take a moment to look at that and, and ask yourself, how am I doing? Do I see um, faithful stewardship in these different areas of my life? It's a good day to, to take that inventory of ourselves. Again, I don't want to put an arbitrary list before you, and I, I don't think we need to leave feeling guilty if you feel like, gosh, I'm only hitting one out of the three or maybe a zero out of three. The intent here isn't to leave with a feeling of, of guilt at all. I think the feeling we should have is closer to a feeling of appreciation for being called into this ministry, called alongside as helpers as builders of this kingdom. Think about what Jesus could have done. He could have gone into Jerusalem and established the kingdom himself. And people like Peter, Andrew, and James, and John, the other disciples, could have been just observers, watching Jesus plant the flag and take his seat on the throne. And they could have just been observing the whole thing. And that's not what Jesus did. Jesus entered, died, rose, and is gone and has entrusted, he entrusted the building of his kingdom to the others. What a privilege. They didn't, they didn't just observe, they got to build. They were given a gift, each of them, that they had a personal interest in the building of the kingdom. And I'm trying to ignite a flame in your heart that says, I have been given an interest in the building of this kingdom. What a, what a privilege. What an entrustment. Look at it that way. That you're not just an observer. That there's an eternal kingdom being built. And I hope this isn't prideful. It feels prideful for us to even think this thought. But I'm going to go there anyway. There's an eternal kingdom being built that one day we'll be able to look at and say, I had a very, very, very minuscule small part in building that kingdom. I don't think there's going to be any feelings of pride. I think it'll be humility. I'm just saying, do your part in building this kingdom. The the delay in the kingdom's coming is difficult, but it's not without its benefits because we get to build by the use of our resources and our gifting and the opportunities. So there are benefits to the delay. There's also rewards. We have to notice that um, as long as we're here, that faithful stewardship is rewarded. And I, we don't talk about this much. At least I don't talk about this much. It, it's, I'll, I'll just admit it's not a super comfortable thought for me, this whole idea of rewards from God. Like, I just feel like being with Jesus and being saved is reward enough. And, like, what's this whole deal with other rewards? Like, what, what even is that? Are we going to be given, like, gold or silver or money or a nice place to live? Like, what, what do we need? We're not going to need those things. We're going to have everything we need when we're with the Lord. What good would more money do? Like, what is this rewards? And all through the Sermon on the Mount, remember, your father who sees in secret will reward you and reward you and reward you and reward you. What is that? And these guys get rewarded here. Notice what their reward is. Their reward is authority. So the guys that faithfully steward well are rewarded with the measure of authority in accordance with their stewardship. One is given authority over ten cities. Another servant is given authority over five cities. 
you think, okay, they're, they're rewarded with authority. What does that mean? Like they get to rule over people and, and tell people what to do? Remember that authority in the kingdom of God, remember what it looks like to have authority. Being an authority means being a servant. If it meant that when Jesus was walking the planet, it's not changing once he comes back. It's not like all of a sudden authority is going to look way different. We're going to get to tell everybody what to do. Authority in the kingdom of God is always service. Think about what they get to do. They get to keep serving the king. They're serving the king and serving the people. They just get to do so more and more to a greater and greater degree. Now, I'm saying I think that's a clue as to the nature of the reward that we will be given if we're faithful stewards. It doesn't have anything to do with money or any of that stuff that we won't need. What will you want? Nearness to Jesus and an opportunity to continue to serve him and to do so more and more. Of course, that's what we'll want. Now, there are things about heaven that are beyond our scope that we're able to imagine, right? We, we can't, but I'm just saying, I think this is a clue as to the nature of the reward that we will want and that we can expect. Some kind of authority, and authority means serving and being near to the king and getting to keep building his kingdom, serving him and serving people. And I, I think that that view is in accordance with the whole tenor of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Now, we said we would deal with delay and opposition, right? Those are the two problems that we're kind of holding here. We've dealt with delay. Delay is a time for faithful stewardship. Let's deal with the other one. We'll deal with this one more quickly. What do we learn here about opposition to the kingdom? We learn that um, Christ will judge his opponents himself. We've got lots of opponents of the kingdom of God out there that we may be concerned about what they're doing, what they're saying. And we see that the nobleman, when he returns, deals justly and swiftly with his opponents himself. The servants who got the minas, we've been focusing on them, but they're not the only group of people that was mentioned here. There's this other group called the citizens. They're mentioned in verse 14. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Those are the opponents. Those are the enemies. So as the servants did their work with the minas, they lived and did business among this other group, the citizens, who hated the king. And they rejected the rule of the king. And of course, we are in the same situation as we live and as we steward our gifts, we know that not everyone loves our king. Not everyone values King Jesus. Not everyone wants him to reign over them. So that situation was present in the first century as he entered Jerusalem, right? And it's still present today. So what are we to do about it? We leave the judgment of these opponents to the king. We don't need to worry that justice won't come to them. We don't need to worry about whether their punishment will be severe enough for our tastes. Verse 27 is really hard. Bring them here and slaughter them before me. These enemies of mine that did not want me to reign over them. In this privileged 
time that you and I are living in where we get to build the kingdom, we have not been given the directive to take up the sword and kill the enemies of the king. We've been told to do the opposite. Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. The king himself will deal with his opponents when he returns. Our directive is love and and prayer, not to kill. And our directive is to share with them that they are not beyond the love of Jesus Christ. And to take the gospel message to them and leave judgment to God. It's in his hands and it's terrible. And we plead with people to avoid that coming judgment. We don't downplay the judgment. We pray for them to avoid the coming judgment by coming to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, here's the last thing. Let's try to figure out what we do about this third servant who really is the focal point of the parable the one who the nobleman addresses as the wicked servant in, verses tw- in verse 22. He's the one that didn't do anything with his mina. He just put it in his handkerchief, hid it somewhere, and took it back to the king. Who is this person a picture of? And could it, could it be me or could it be you? And what happens to him? There are differing views on this Servant, this wicked servant. Um, not all the scholars who look at this passage are in agreement about exactly who this represents, but I'll give you my view, and then you take this for what it's worth and um, continue to look into it yourselves. I, I'm in agreement with the scholars of the Gospel of Luke who see this third servant as someone who bought into the prevailing narrative about the nobleman. There was a prevailing narrative among the citizens that the king was not worthy to rule. So let me explain exactly what I mean. I'm saying that what he says about the king in verse 21 about his character, I'm saying is not true. That in the story, the nobleman is not a harsh man who takes what he doesn't sow, takes what he didn't deposit, and reaps what he didn't sow. I'm saying that that's not true, but that it was the prevailing narrative among the citizens about why they didn't want him to reign over them. See, they impugned his character, which is exactly what was going on in Jerusalem. People saying things about Jesus that weren't true. Remember, there was a prevailing narrative that the power he was using to cast out demons came from Satan. It wasn't true. But the third servant, in, in my view, I, I'm in agreement with the people that see this person as having bought into that narrative about the nobleman and repeating the line that was going around about him. And by the way, the nobleman had just refuted that whole narrative by how he had treated the first two servants that he deals with. Like, he, he was a giver. They were faithful stewards, and he gave them more. He didn't just take back what he had and say, get out of here. That's what a a harsh person would have done. He graciously gave them more. He's a good, and he is a just ruler. He rewards them justly. He's demonstrated that he's not what the narrative says that he is. The words of verse 21 are not true about him. And by the way, even if they were true, If that was true, that he's a harsh man and he takes stuff that's not his, then this wicked servant, 
should have deposited the money in the bank and at least had a little bit of interest to give to him. Because, look, if he's a severe guy who's likely to fly off the handle and treat people poorly, you better not show up with nothing. You better have something to offer him. And he had nothing. The nobleman correctly points out that if the wicked servant really believed that narrative, he should have acted differently. Well, what's the point of all of this for us? It's that we're to leave the, the judgment of enemies to Christ. And we are to realize, just in sobriety, realize that false narratives about the character of Christ and about the character of God will continue to be spread while we're here. But that they're not true. Like the nobleman in the parable, God has already proven that he is good and he is just, that he is a gracious giver in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, whom he was under no obligation to give. He gave him up for sinners to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed so that God could be both just and merciful to you. sounds like a good king to me. The wicked servant in, in the end, now this is, it's not explicit here, but in the parable of the talents, which you'll find in other gospel accounts, there's a lot of overlap. They're very similar in the end. That servant um, um, is cast out. I think that probably that's the intention here is to show that this wicked servant is cast out and even slaughtered along with the others. But it's not because he was fearful and lazy. That's not the reason that he's cast out and that he's slaughtered. It's because he ended up believing a lie and rejecting the king. He joined the rebellion against the king. And, there, and therefore did nothing with his mina. See, his actions of being lazy and unfaithful sprung from his convictions about who the king was. And for those reasons, those rebellious reasons, he was cast out. So I, I don't want anyone to leave here today thinking, goodness, if I've been a lazy Christian, like if, if remember that list of three things, giving, gifting, opportunities, if I've been a lazy Christian, like I'm in danger of being slaughtered, like because this guy who only didn't have any return on his mina, like he was cast out and slaughtered. So what does that mean for me? Like if I'm too lazy and not faithful, that means that I'm in fear of the judgment of hell. No, that's not true. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done all the work. There's no work left for you to do. Jesus has done all the work. Believe in him and live. Judgment is for those who have joined the rebellion against Jesus and believed a false narrative about him and rejected him as king. If you own him as king, life is yours in his name, and that cannot be taken away from you. The call in this parable is to handle delay and opposition well, knowing that delay is a time for faithful stewardship, and Jesus will deal with opposition himself when he returns. He will deal with it finally and justly, okay? Now, we've been prepared for opposition and for delay. Let's at least understand that basic thing. Jesus has prepared us. 
Now it's up to us to go and put this into practice. I just want to encourage you to stay close to Jesus this week. Um, to lay down idols, turn and embrace Jesus. To love him, to pray to him and walk with him. Amen. Lord, we love uh, to look into the words of Jesus. And now we just let them settle on our hearts. I, um, I ask that no one today would leave feeling guilty about what they have not done, but just with a lot of joy over the opportunity that's before them to steward what you've given them. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We name him as king. Now empower your people to go and live lives of beauty and faith in his name. Amen.